So, I'm going to start with a story. In the early 4th century, there was a massive sea change underway in regards to religion in the Western world. The Roman Emperor Constantine had recently converted to Christianity. And so it officially ended the persecution of what had been previously for a few hundred years an underground rogue religious sect. But now Christians, followers of Jesus, could come out from hiding and with the endorsement of the emperor, they'd eventually become the state-established religion of the empire. But now that the faith was more in the open and the emperor himself was invested in it, debates about what Christians actually believed about Jesus kind of became hot topics of the day. And the biggest controversy of the day became known as what we call the Arian controversy. Okay, it's named after one of the key players, the church leader Arius. And the question under debate was whether Jesus was actually like fully God eternally equal with God the Father, or whether Jesus was like created by the divine at some point and was thus subject to God along with the Holy Spirit. So I know this sounds like super archaic and probably be like, why did they care? Like how, why does that matter? Um, it can sound pretty heady. But at the heart of the question was whether God was ultimately a God of hierarchy, a God of concentrated unequal power, or a God of mutuality, a God of equity, a God of cooperation. That was really the thing they were debating. Anyway, Arius, I've got a picture of it, believed in a hierarchy within God. Okay, something like this. God, there was like God the Father. Jesus is created by God at some point, And beneath God, in power, like eternally, because Jesus came later. And so did the Holy Spirit. That was how he saw it. And the view became really popular amongst people in Constantinople, the capital. Now, how did that happen? How did he go viral? Because, you know, this was like a thousand years before Gutenberg and the printing press. So you couldn't just like write what you had, what you thought and distribute it. And there was no blog posts. There was no YouTube. So how did his thoughts go viral? He ended up writing songs, okay? People were illiterate. This is how you spread your word, okay? What he did was he wrote these songs, and he got together, and they were like catchy tunes of the day. And he forms this band and this choir, and he has these singers perform his songs throughout the nights in the city of Constantinople. And, like, the songs apparently are catchy, and people start to sing them just recreationally. So, like, sailors begin to, like, sing these tunes on their ships, and the, the, the thought of Arius begins to spread because it's like pop culture now. Okay, Well, not to be outdone, the church father, Chrysostom, becomes frustrated and worried about these views of Arius spreading because he thinks they're wrong. And so he decides to try to beat Arius at his own street musician game. Okay, Chrysostom begins organizing night processions through the streets, like has this group of musicians come out of his church, and they have their own procession with hymn singing, with candles, with pageantry. I know, it's crazy, right? These two rival groups have this like fourth century battle of the bands happening in the streets every night. All right? Can you picture it? Sometimes as these groups would be like processing through the streets, they'd actually come upon each other. And there are reports that like full out riots broke out. Like it was intense. And all the conflict eventually prompts the emperor 
to call the first ecumenical council, meaning the first time we were going to have all the leaders of all the churches from around the known world get together and try to figure something out about what we actually believe about any of this stuff. And what came out of that was the group decided against Arius to what we have now, what most Christians accept as Trinitarianism. They uh, articulated that through something called the Nicene Creed, because this happened in a place called Nicaea. And that's become kind of the accepted view uh, that pretty much since the 4th century, um, Christians around the world have kind of understood this to mean that God is a God of equity, that God is a God of mutuality and not hierarchy. And uh, all of that came out of these feuding songs in the streets. Interesting, huh? Well, over the last several weeks, we've been working through a series that I'm calling Reconstructing Faith, exploring the ways that we need to take apart and rebuild systems of meaning around our understanding and our practice of spirituality. A lot of us have been through some sort of journey on that. And, and we're trying to create here at Haven a safe place for us to do that journey alongside one another, sometimes in, in cooperation with one another, sometimes respecting where other people are that may be different than where we are. And we've been talking about a number of things that we are kind of deconstructing and reconstructing. We've talked about the identity of God. We've talked about our understanding of the Bible. And today, we're going to focus on a portion of our devotional life, specifically the practice of musical worship. Okay, as was demonstrated by this little story about the fourth century, the songs we sing about faith, they can really matter, right? Whether you're a musician or not, music can play a powerful role in shaping your understanding and practice of faith. But that can also be complicated, right? Each week we've been hearing in this series from someone in our community besides myself about something they've been deconstructing and reconstructing. And deconstructing and reconstructing this idea, this theme of uh, musical worship has been something that our friend Elisa has been doing for a long time. It's a big part of her story. And so um, I've asked her to share that story with us today. So we're going to take some time to do that. We're going to take a little more time than we've done for some of these in the past because I think she has such a, a, it's such a core story for her, and I think it's an important one for our community to hear. So I'm going to turn things over to Elisa, and then, uh, and then we'll come back and, and talk about stuff more. Lord, I give you my heart, I give you my soul, I live for you alone, every breath that I take, every moment I'm awake, Lord, have your way in me, Lord, have your way. This song, it's called Lord, I Give You My Heart, it's a song that was playing when I had one of the most profound spiritual experiences of my life. I was 15 at youth camp. Who went to youth camp, right? And I was kneeling at the altar, and I remember this feeling of being surrounded by love and connection and some indefinable otherness. And while I'd grown up in church and had some really amazing altar call we'll call them, moments previous to this, this is the moment where I say I fell in love with God. 
Even more so, I fell in love with the experience of being in God's presence. And the best way for me really to describe that experience is to quote Reese Witherspoon from the movie Sweet Home Alabama when she's talking about her romantic love. But she says, the truth is, I gave my heart away a long time ago, my whole heart, and I never really got it back. And at age 15, I gave my whole heart away to God, and I never really got it back. And I'm not talking about just like some salvation prayer thing. I'm talking about just like literally, utterly falling in love with God. Interestingly, it was also at age 15 that I started leading worship in our church youth band. The funny thing is, is that I've never really had a relationship with problem with, relationship problem with God since then. However, I have had a relationship problem with the church, its theology, and its people. As I went through my teens and early 20s, I spent all of my time at church-related events and even went to a private Christian college. It was during college that I started noticing the pattern of pastors and worship leaders um, using worship as a way to create this hyper-emotional state in people and weaponizing the guilt and shame of sin to create these alter experiences. I mean, I was raised Pentecostal, and so the whole service revolved around demonstrative worship. And it almost seemed as if you were not truly spiritual unless you were crying at the altar or dancing in the aisle. Repeatedly being a victim of this, I began to question the authenticity of this whole worship thing. Well, when I was 25, I started attending a Church of God church in Georgia, which, by the way, was a little scandalous because I was raised Assemblies of God and we didn't switch denominations. So anyway, backstory. Um, so I was attending the Church of God Church in Georgia and found myself on their worship team, kind of by a random series of events. And I have this distinct memory of the last time I led worship in my 20s. I remember holding the microphone and trying to sing in front of us, about a couple thousand people. This is a pretty big church. But feeling like such a fraud because I wasn't who they thought I was. Because the truth was is that I had a secret that I couldn't tell anyone. I knew that I was a lesbian, and all I knew was that I had been taught that gay was evil. The only way for me to make sense of that was to follow the teachings I had learned. My gayness was a symptom of my sin, and it was my shame to bear. So at 25, I was full of self-hatred and self-loathing, and I found that I could not bear the weight of being seen publicly as a person leading worship because I believed I was too sinful and broken. And I remember singing, this is a song, Hosanna by Hillsong. Everybody know that song? Hosanna, Hosanna, that song. And I was knowing that that was the last song I would ever sing from the stage. And so I stepped off the stage, laid the mic down, and walked away. The next five years were what I call my wondering years, my coming out years, and my I lost everything years. I had to make sense of my sexuality, my faith, and how to live cut off from the very culture that had raised me. The first quote-unquote gay church that I attended taught me that not only were gay people beloved by God, but that the Spirit of God was just as present in their lives as straight people. What a shock, right? However, my Pentecostal raised self still felt cut off from the intimate connection that I had once enjoyed with God and worship because the worship style at that church was very liturgical. It still seemed like I had lost what I would once loved so deeply. Well, through a very long story about divine intervention and divine guidance, I found myself at a church in San Francisco in July of 2013. And I remember walking in, and the worship leader, who was very Pentecostal, I'm talking United Pentecostal Church, which is like really Pentecostal, um, and he was very gay, um, flaming, was leading worship songs in the way that I had known growing up. I was blown away because here were people just like me who were worshiping God like I craved. I literally cried every Sunday for the next month (laughs) during service um, in both joy and grief. 
And it was that environment that allowed me to make sense of myself, but it was another year before anyone could get me on the worship team. Um, I agreed to start out small by playing bass guitar in the background because that wasn't too scary, right? Like, I didn't have to sing. I could just look cool in the background. It's all good. See, the problem was that my distrust in this environment, the lack of safety of worship environments, and the trauma associated with the weaponizing of worship still felt like too much to me. I was going through the motions because I wanted this thing back that I loved, but I was too afraid to really open myself up again. I was also afraid that if I opened myself up to God, I would be disappointed because I might find that God had truly rejected me like my hometown pastor said God would. So it took me a number of years to realize that I was spending so much time working through what I had been taught about God and then what scripture said about God that I had completely not asked God anything. My fear was keeping me from that deep, intimate connection because my brain couldn't accept that what I had been taught might be wrong. And if what I had been taught was wrong, then I had been misused misguided and abused spiritually and if those things were true what would be my true north what could I trust and what did this mean about the people who had cultivated this faith in my life it was about this time that I heard a teaching on John 10 27 which I think this is the King James which is whatever but King James uh, it says my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me during that message I realized that this was the answer to all of this I knew that I knew God's voice I had experienced it and would know it if I heard it again. And I could rely on that as my compass for what was good and right. And as I began to deconstruct my theology and the systems in which I participated in the practice of that theology, I began to measure it against what I knew to be God's presence in my life. It was in this mindset that I became a very, very reluctant worship leader in 2016. I found that I could finally start to reach those deeper levels with God and worship and lead people into that space as well. But just as I started to figure all of that out, I found myself in another traumatic church situation. As my church was falling apart around me, I felt like a failure and completely inadequate. I realized that a worship environment had once again traumatized me and it had become unsafe. So after my last service as worship leader this past May, I took the summer off. I found myself doubting that I had anything to offer as a worship leader. I told Leah over and over again that I was thinking about just walking away from it completely. The problem was... That every time I picked up this stupid guitar, I could feel God's presence so strongly that I couldn't deny the anointing in my life. A month ago, if you were here, I led worship here for the first time, and it felt like coming home to something I'd loved, missed, and belonged to. Two weekends ago, I was at the Reformation Project Conference um, where they created this beautifully safe worship environment. And I found myself uh, entering into a worship space in a way that I haven't been able to I would say in 20 years, like since I was 15. Um, I found myself sobbing at the front of this church because I was suddenly experiencing God like I had when I was 15. It was safe, beautiful, loving, and utterly divine. It was just pure. And I heard God say to me, I have always been here. I have always loved you. You just couldn't hear me because of all the other things in the way. Because you see, I've never really had a relationship problem with God. I've had a relationship problem with the church, its theology, and its people. So the question I'm asking myself now is, how do we make worship safe? How do we de-weaponize it? Because the system and all the isms and all the people trying to speak for God, they don't get to own the worship environment. They don't get to take that away from me. I love God. I love to worship God. And I just want to do it in a way that doesn't abuse people or myself. So my journey now is to figure out what does worship look like for this Pentecostal raised, southern but not really southern anymore, 
deconstructed, somewhat traditional, feminist, lesbian, Jesus-following worship leader. And I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that my heart still belongs to God, and I'll never get it back. All right, perhaps you can resonate in some way with Elisa's story. If you've been in faith community for any period of time, then likely you've had some experiences with musical worship, and hopefully at least some of those have felt freeing, have felt liberating, have felt honest. Maybe it took you out of yourself into something bigger that was beautiful, even transcendent. But I know a number of us have also, like Elisa, had some other experiences too. Experiences maybe where we felt like we just couldn't bring our whole self into worship. Like we somehow had to hide part of who we were. Experiences where the whole thing might have felt a bit false like we were being asked to sing or proclaim or perform some sort of spiritual connectedness that we didn't know if we really felt. Or maybe we just simply carry associations that a certain style of music now brings because it reminds us of a setting in which we experience some real pain, even spiritual trauma. And because I think music is so powerfully kinesthetic, When we hear songs that are connected to our trauma, our body can, like, forget in the moment that we're actually safe now, right? It might actually bring us back somewhere to that, where that pain feels really raw and it's fresh. Maybe that makes part of us just want to leave the whole practice of worship and song behind because it's just too complicated. But here at Haven, part of our core self-understanding is that we're trying to live into a tension of being a community that is safe, that is diverse, in an intersectional kind of diversity, so queer inclusive, people of color inclusive, etc., etc., and Jesus-centered, okay? And inherently, there are going to be tensions to living those values out because particularly, I think, in this practice of musical worship, what feels unsafe to one person might be exactly what somebody else feels is essential for connecting with Jesus. So how do we move forward with this? Well, I have some thoughts. Um, We'll get into kind of this, this stuff that's a little more, you know, if you like to fill in the blanks, that's the kind of thing you would do. So we have these handouts. You do not need to use them, but they are there if, if you would like to interact in that way. I'm going to st- start this process of our community kind of asking this question. How could we move forward? Um, by looking at a few things, asking a few questions. All right. First, we're going to remember briefly what this practice of singing in a room is actually connected to. I have a slide about this. We're going to ask, what is the bigger picture That's the first blank you'd fill in. What's the bigger picture that singing together is a part of? How are we supposed to even understand the context for this practice? Second, as a Jesus-centered community, we're going to take some time to consider what we might know about Jesus's worship practices. Okay, what do we know about Jesus's connection to musical worship? What do we know about Jesus's connection to musical worship? And thirdly, we'll take some time to consider What qualities should we potentially seek to cultivate in our community's culture 
around worship and song. That's kind of where we're going to be going. That's the broad overview, okay? First, let's talk big picture. Many of us, though certainly not all, have spent time in churches where the terms worship or praise and worship are used to describe a period of a service on a Sunday where people play guitars and pianos and sing, right? But I want to start by reminding us that to think of worship as just the time when people sing together in a room is unhelpfully limited, okay? At Haven, sometimes we talk about being a centered set church. I'm going to put up a new graphic that uh, one of our sister churches recently released on this because I think it's a good one. Um, This kind of gives you the idea of what it means to be centered on Jesus. This is what we're talking about. We say we don't define our community by a set of black and white shared life experiences, but more that our community recognizes all of us are journeying, journeying through life. We're all heading somewhere. We're all on a going somewhere. And the life of faith is about being invited to orient our journey toward the divine, toward Jesus in a Jesus-centered community. We think about our community as a place that gathers different people from different walks of life who are drawn to this shared center point we name Jesus. And I think it's a helpful framework to keep in mind when we think about the idea of worship, right? Worship is a relational activity. If our aim in the life of faith is to orient ourselves around Jesus and move forward in following Jesus, then I believe worship is the means for reorienting our vision and reengaging the center. Okay, this is another one I think you can fill in the blanks. Uh, Next slide. Okay, in a centered set framework, worship is a helpful means for reorienting our vision and re-engaging the center. Make sense? Worship's the act of ascribing supreme worth to God. That's what it means. Recognizing our own worth comes from our connection to the divine. We're remembering actively that God is the end towards which we're trying to move. We're trying to calibrate towards that center point. Now, worship can come in numerous forms. We see throughout the Bible, as Israel worships, Through lots of different ways, giving of the harvest, giving of the animals they raise for food, okay? This is giving back out of their resources, reminding us that giving our time, giving our money, the fruit of our labor, that's a way we worship. Worship in the Bible often means physically expressing honor through your body by they would bow face down or lift their hands or dance. It can mean fasting and prayer, and other devotional practices that are practiced both individually and communally. It can involve communal participation in rhythms of celebration and remembrance through festivals, through other gatherings. These included rituals, meals together, liturgies, readings, and yes, often at times they involved poetry and music, singing and dancing. All of that is really what we're talking about when we talk about the category worship. That's the bigger picture when we're considering worship. It's helpful to remember that when we think about the musical portion of what we do here. I often try to use the terminology of something like worship in song or musical worship to remind us it's just a subset of a much bigger part of our devotional life. Does that make sense? It's not all of what it is. And the reason we make space here to do music isn't just to have some cool, something more entertaining than me speaking, some coffee house or rock show vibe. 
it is actually to try to make a space to enter into this ancient practice that serves as a medium of engagement with the divine to help us reconnect with that center we're trying to move towards and connect with one another in the process. That's the big picture. What about Jesus? What do we know about his participation in corporate worship and specifically worshiping in song? It's true. We don't have stories of Jesus like pulling out a guitar and going all hipster rock star and, you know, forming a band with the 12. Like that's not in there. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, sadly, right? (laughs) But we do see a picture of him participating fully and regularly in the Jewish life of faith. And that meant participating in synagogue regularly. It meant attending the festivals in Jerusalem throughout the year. From a young age, we see pictures of him on the caravans headed from Galilee up to the temple in Jerusalem. And as the observant Jews gathered for their Shabbat services in the synagogue or caravan toward Jerusalem, do you think they just did that quietly? They just meditatively were walking? No, they were singing. Song has long been a part of devotional life in Israel. And Jesus was a full participant in that. We see him as an adult, you know, living the life of a rabbi. And that would mean singing in worship. And it's not just what we can infer, knowing about Jesus's habits of Jewish life, that we know that musical worship was an important part of his practice. We actually see it in the words that the gospel writers share of his, that again and again, He has been formed by the language of worship. Because do you know what book Jesus quoted from the Hebrew Bible more than any other? What book Jesus quoted the most? It was the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms. There's your little freebie for the day. It makes sense, right, though, when you think about it. Okay, remember from our last conversation, this is not a time when people carried around their own version of, you know, the Torah. You didn't have it. You couldn't learn the Bible that way. You could not interact with Scripture. The only places you interacted with it were by being in community, by hearing it read, by listening to parts of it, by learning to retain parts of it by memory. And what is the best, the most easy things to retain by memory are the songs, right? The songs aren't just words. These psalms, they had melody, they had a harmony, they had rhythm, they had cadence, they had repetition and poetry. And so you studied them, you learned the psalms, you sang them together. They weren't just a group of old poems in some book that you read out of context. These were the songs of worship. You sang in community the songs that shaped your understanding of faith. It gave you imagery to draw upon for how you understood the life of faith, that who God is. It provided a foundation for you to consider and talk about the identity of God and what your understanding of what God is doing in the world. So what kind of psalms would Jesus have been drawing on? What kind of songs do you actually find in what we call the book of Psalms? I think it's helpful to do a bit of an aside on this because it's so core to Jesus' own practice, what he would have experienced as worship. So here's my little, here's what the Psalms is. The book of Psalms was the song book of Israel, 
It was made up of songs and poems written by ancient Israelites throughout the era in which Israel was a monarchy all the way through the exile. So something like 1,000 to 500 years before Jesus lived, these songs were being cataloged. And the bulk of the 150 songs we have in the book of Psalms falls into one of three major categories. These categories have very distinct forms that appear again and again. These are the genres, if you want to break it down, of the Psalms, okay? The core genres are, number one, hymns of praise. Number two, psalms of thanksgiving, both individual and corporate. And number three, laments. Okay, we're just going to take a a thumbnail sketch of what each of these is. Number one, hymns of praise. These were songs celebrating the identity of God, describing who they understood God to be, their creator, their redeemer, and inviting people to praise this God in connection to their understanding of the God's identity. All right, look at Psalm 113. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with the princes, with the princes of his people. He settles the childless woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. Okay, you see the psalmist here is reflecting on who he under he or she understands this this God to be. What kinds of things this God does. This God redeems. This God creates. This God liberates. And then invites people to praise. Then there's the Psalms of Thanksgiving. These are about honoring the divine for specific things that you have seen God do. Or you have heard uh, God has done in your history, right? A way to thank God specifically for specific actions. And these can be personal or they can be corporate. Here's just a taste of one of the corporate ones in Psalm 66. Come and see what God has done, his awesome deeds for mankind. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the waters on foot. Come, let us rejoice in him. It's a psalm of thanksgiving saying, we know God delivered us. Remember Remember Egypt. Remember the Exodus. We want to thank God for that. That's a psalm of thanksgiving. And then there are the others, the psalms of lament. This is the category I think is often most overlooked, particularly in contemporary worship. And I think that maybe that's because a lot of Christians feel uncomfortable with these kind of songs and with these psalms. We don't know what to do with songs like this. But it's important to recognize they are a hugely vital part of the worship tradition of Israel. They make up at least a third of all the psalms in the Psalter. Lament is the primal cry of the wounded. Lament is the honest struggle. It is fear. It is anger is depression, and sometimes despair. Lament asks questions that can't easily be answered. And lament invites us to sit in the dissonance of being in connection to a divine one that we believe is good, whose ways are said to be right and just, and yet we face realities that are not good. We experience things that are not right that are unjust. 
Lament goes into that tension. It asks questions like the words of David in Psalm 13. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. Can you hear the anguish? These were the kinds of songs Jesus grew up singing. The kinds of songs he sang with his closest friends. The songs they sang in the synagogue as they walked between villages on their ministry tours. Heading up to Jerusalem for the Passover. Hymns of praise, psalms of thanksgiving, cries of lament. These songs would have shaped him. They, and he, we know that because he reaches for them. He reaches for them in surprising moments, particularly in the climax of his story during the last week of his life. I'm just going to show you a few little places of Jesus using the Psalms. He used them to speak to the Pharisees who confronted him in the temple after Jesus has triumphantly entered the city and gone into the temple and cleared it out of all the money exchangers, right? Real ruckus. And then it says this in Matthew 21, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple courts and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the experts in the law saw the wonderful things He did, and heard the children crying out in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David. They became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of children and nursing infants, you have prepared praise for yourself? There it is, Psalm 8, 2. Jesus is rooting what he has come to do, what he is doing in this very moment, in the ancient sacred traditions of their people. His work is calling people to worship. And far from being an embarrassing sacrilege, like these Pharisees are trying to imply, Jesus pulls out the psalm to remind them what tradition they're all a part of. How this is a good thing. God has ordained praise and is calling it out of the least of these. They are embodying something that our tradition says has been meaningful for ages in a way that you, my Pharisee friends, cannot. When Jesus is having his last supper with his followers multiple times in those exchanges, he reaches for the Psalms to ominously describe what's coming. One of the most gripping moments is when he points out after washing his feet after washing their feet that one of the 12 there is going to betray him. And this is what he says in John 13:18. This is to fulfill the scripture. The one who eats my bread has turned against me. This is a quote from Psalm 41:9. This is Jesus putting his experience in the tradition of lamenters before him, like David, who wrote this. He's saying, I'm, I'm in fellowship right now with people like David. 
who've been betrayed. There's a tradition for this, and we know it from our songs. Finally, on the cross, it's the Psalms. Jesus reaches for with the last breaths he has left in his broken body. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Matthew 27, 46. This is the first verse from Psalm 22. Another lament of David's. And then finally, as Luke says in Luke 23, 46, Jesus reaches a place of surrender using these words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Psalm 31, 5. This is one of David's hymns of praise. Remember, those are the ones that meditate on the identity of God and respond. In this hymn, David is saying, you are trustworthy. You are a God I can entrust my life with. These are the words Jesus is quoting as he entrusts his own life to the divine. Why does all this matter? I think it matters because if we're looking to Jesus as some sort of North Star kind of model in our life of faith, I think it's relevant when we think about musical worship to know that he had a vibrant worship life. He was immersed in the traditions of praying and singing the Psalms, and that shaped his understanding of the divine and of himself so much so that in crucial moments, when he certainly could have come up with something brilliant to say. This is a brilliant guy, provocative, creative thinker who came up with mind-blowing parables, completely innovative interpretations no one had ever heard before. And yet, in these vital moments, he used the words he had sung in community, the words of his tradition, the words that felt most resonant, the words from his community's songbook. I don't know about you. I've had moments, particularly lately, where I have felt like there are not words that I can come up with in the moment to express the intensity of what I am feeling. It is overwhelming. And yet somehow, the gift of singing with people has released something that I couldn't release any other way. One of these moments happened this last Monday. In the wake of last weekend's deadly shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, after the massacre there, I reached out to our friend, Rabbi Dorothy, who has spoken here at Haven before, taught us some Torah, see how she was doing, how we could support her. And she invited me to attend an event she was organizing. Her, her current employment right now is with uh, the JCC. And uh, the JCC leaders were organizing an event this past Monday night to gather, to grieve, and to sing. And she said allies were welcome. And she invited me to even lead a song. If I was up for it, I said I, I'd be happy to do anything. And, and I showed up, and Sylvia came with me. 
And when we got there, I mean, I immediately was like, okay, this is not what I was expecting. I don't think it was what anyone was expecting. The size of the assembly was, I mean, there had to be like six or 700 people in a space that was really meant to hold like 300. It was overwhelming. It was powerful. I couldn't even get up to the front to be able to tell Rabbi Dorothy I was here. So I was like, I'm just happy to enter into this. And to be led by this group of people. And I was so grateful to gather with this large assembly, mostly Jewish, but not all. As they wept and they prayed and they sang and they sang and they sang. uh, Songs, many of which were unfamiliar to me, but entrancing. Songs that gave voice to the grief, the longing, the weariness that so many people were feeling. It was as if everyone there had things they needed to say. That was why everyone felt called to come. They had to get out that sense of anger and fear and despair, but there aren't words to express those feelings until we sang then we could use the words of the songs that were given to actually speak what was on our hearts. We sang in English. We sang in Hebrew. We sang lines from the Psalms in the language they were written in. And there was something so profound and restorative, even in the midst of great grief and loss and fear, as we sang and our voices blended and separated and our breaths released in unison. Our cheeks moist from weeping, our hearts heavy and yet hopeful, being profoundly aware that we were not alone. It was a sacred space, a sacred time of holy song. And it reminded me that whatever cynicism I have at times about these practices, I can never let this go. So what about Haven? If we want to recognize that we can't abandon this practice of singing in a room together, and we want to somehow reclaim it and reconstruct an experience of worship and song that feels right for our community, how might we proceed? I'm going to end not with an exhaustive answer, but just to suggest a few ideas of maybe qualities we might seek to cultivate in the culture of musical worship that we would reconstruct here together at Haven. Here's just my my ending thoughts. First, I think worship should be honest. Worship should be honest. There has to be room for lament. There has to be room for ambiguity. There has to be room for color and shades of gray and not just blacks and whites. There has to be minor chords, not just majors, right? Room to enter in, in different ways. That's also honesty. Not everyone has to experience it the same way. That's why we take a very, very, like, come-as-you-are, participate-as-you're-ready approach because we want it to feel honest. We don't want you to feel like you're being, you know, coerced into something that doesn't feel good or doesn't feel true. It's an invitation 
not a manipulation. That's the goal, right? I'm inviting you to take a journey into connecting with God. I believe that's a helpful practice for all of us. But I'm not going to force you. Honest worship means we have permission for each of us to be exactly where we're at without a need to perform faith or perform participation for anyone else. Worship should be honest. Second, though, worship should be thoughtful. Worship should be thoughtful. Because what we say about God matters. What we sing about God matters. We see that in the fourth century. We see that in the life of Jesus, right? Our songs shape our theology. Our songs shape our understanding of the divine. And so we need to be thoughtful about it. We need to be thoughtful. We've been having conversations about, you know, exploring the reality that God doesn't have a penis. (laughs) God's not a man. Okay? (laughs) Right. We can use male metaphors for God, but that doesn't speak of who God is because God is not a man. And so we should use other metaphors too, like female metaphors. And so that means our songs may not always have exclusively male pronouns because God is not exclusively male. But I got to say, we're kind of on the early edge of that conversation, which might mean that we're rewriting some songs. We're writing our own. And that's okay. And it's also real. The different of, you know, we're again, a diverse community trying to create safety and diversity. And if you don't feel comfortable singing God's a she, then that's fine. You sing what you feel comfortable with. That's okay. But we're going to make space to be thoughtful. We're going to make space to use different metaphors, even as we invite each of us to honestly enter into worship in whatever way we, we feel sounds right to us. Okay? There are metaphors. We're also going to say in our thoughtfulness, there are metaphors for God that have been helpful historically, that have made sense at one point in history, but can be problematic now. Specifically, I think about triumphalist God as a conqueror images that that are in a lot of our songs. And it is true that there is a period of time, and particularly, and we see imagery in the Bible, where God is presented as a conquering warrior, as a triumphant king who's going to vanquish all the enemies. And I think there's something still to be celebrated there, that we say, yes, we believe that ultimately God is for justice. God is against oppression. We have hope that ultimately that's going to be dealt with. But it's also true that that imagery has been a tool of oppression. And that our faith has historically participated in that oppression of marginalized people in colonialism in ways that I think the church is called to repent of and say we missed the mark there. This isn't all of who God is. And so we may deal with that in how we sing. And again, it's not that we'll never use a song that has that imagery of God, but we want to be thoughtful about it. 
and we want to hold things in tension, and we want to think about the mosaic of images we're drawing on rather than just one set of images all the time. Does that make sense? And the third thing I would offer, worship is honest and thoughtful and connective. Worship should be connective. It should remind us that we're part of something bigger. It should take us out of ourselves, connect us with the people in the room, in this community, that we are part of something here. We're not just individuals coming to consume an experience that's been tailored specifically for us. This is not our iTunes playlist, okay? Y'all put on there whatever you want that's helpful just for you, right? Whatever you personally need. But this time, this time is about singing together that connects us with one another, Reminding us that we are part of creating, co-creating an environment for all of us to experience connection with the divine. It's about connecting us also with something even beyond what's happening in this room. Connecting us with our history, with those who've come before us, with the bigger family of God we're a part of, with, yes, the people in this room, but those who'll come after. Connecting us with the, the psalm singers of Israel, all of it. So we're going to sing hymns and songs and songs from different genres and different languages because we don't want to be limited by just this time and scope as if that speaks all of who God is. We want to be connected to our global family. And ultimately, all of this should be connecting us to the divine toward which we're moving and the others who are moving in that same direction too. So this doesn't answer every question about what song should we sing, what instrument should we play, what style should we lead with, should you stand, should you sit, should you put your hands in the air. I'm not, not getting into all that. There's a lot more to be negotiated in constructing a healthy culture of worship that feels safe and diverse and Jesus-centered. But I'm hoping this is a start. I'm hoping that co-creating a worship space together where we have the capacity to participate in ways that are honest, that are thoughtful, and that are connective will help us together to discern a medium for letting our journeys turn toward the divine, to re-engage with the center we're pursuing, to stand in the stream of songs with those who've come before us and those who will follow, and to be nourished by the same rich waters of musical expression that nourish the Jesus that we follow. Amen.